Well, this week I read articles that treated the financial side of the Super Bowl. I've always been really interested in the Super Bowl. For one, I grew up not being able to see the first half of the Super Bowls before the days of VCR and Tebow and everything else because uh, we were at church and so we would always be able to save the second half. But then my aunt got a job with Sports Illustrated and I've been able to go to six Super Bowls. Uh, and so it's, it's been 20 plus years since I've been to my last, but we've had some really good times at Super Bowls. So I've always been fascinated with Super Bowls. Um, but get this, the, the average price of a ticket this year at the Super Bowl is $7,000. If you're looking to splurge, that's not splurging, by the way. StubHub has an all-inclusive ticket package for two. For a private box seating on, or sitting on the 35-yard line for $60,000. Yeah. Now, let me just say, one year in Phoenix, I sat in a box on the 49-yard line. I didn't pay a dime for it, though. According to the National Retail Federation, this year's Super Bowl is expected to generate $17.2 billion in spending nationwide. Not worldwide, nationwide. The average fan will spend $88 on food, drinks, and decoration for the game. Amen. 9% of Super Bowl shoppers plan on buying a new television for the game. And 6% new furniture. Yeah. And $6.8 billion is expected to be bet on the Super Bowl. Two to three million dollars. I saw this on the news last night at Caesars, Southern Indiana. Now, my point is not to say that to watch or to be excited about the Super Bowl is a sin. I certainly will watch it tonight. We will. Or that it's idolatrous for that matter. But it is to say that you can detect where the cultural idols are by where the most time and treasures are spent. Now, no sin is condemned more severely in the Old Testament, and certainly it's, the New Testament is consistent with that, than the sin of idolatry. It's the first commandment. No prophet denounced this sin more frequently and fervently than Jeremiah and Isaiah. Isaiah coming before Jeremiah. It was a recurring issue for the Israelites right out of the Exodus. We remember in Exodus 32, Moses goes up the mountain, and no sooner is he up there than the people have made uh, these graven images. And so it was an issue, and as a result, it would be assumed that the temptation would increase when Israel find it, found itself in pagan surroundings. That was why the command given to Joshua to clean the land of idolatry 
was so important. And they didn't. And hence the perennial problem. And that brings us to the first part of this passage, the insanity of idolatry. And it is insane. Look at me in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you. Isn't that a great way to start a sermon? You can't improve that way. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you. O house of Israel, thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. Now, Jeremiah 10 begins with the nations. You see that verse 1? And it ends, or actually you see that in verse 2, and then you, it ends in verse 25. Pour out your wrath on the nations. So that is a literary signal that, that, that we are to take this chapter as a whole. Now, learn not the way of the nations is similar to what Paul said in Romans 12 and 2, right? When he said, and do not be conformed to the pattern of of this world. And, and this gives us insight into why idol worship is so compelling. Everybody's doing it. It's the water we are swimming in. You see it there. The way of the nations. It's hard to say when chapter 10 was written. It's really not that important. But we know Jeremiah wrote it. But many believe it was written by Jeremiah, either during the exile was taking place, you know, there were three stages to the exile, or after the exile. If so, it gives us a second reason why idolatry was so compelling. The idols seem to be working. Now, why would we make that point? In other words, if this was written in the exile, then it was addressed to people who were very likely impressed with the beauty of the ostentatious Babylonian temples and idols. And it's likely they would have been tempted to think that the Babylonian gods had proven themselves more powerful than the Lord. After all, they are subjugated to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians had their gods. But these idols provoked unhealthy, anxious fear and dismay, not love. Notice, the nations here believed that the extraordinary signs in the sky, such as eclipses and comets and or the alignment of stars, were the work of evil forces, and it scared them. And Jeremiah says these things were not to be worshipped, these things are not to be feared. And it's amazing how there is a rise of this astrology, fascination with astrology today. Uh, I just finished a two-volume biography on Elvis, and, and Elvis was very much into astrology and, 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 and stars and, and, and how these things were aligned. Well, you see it here. And, and Jeremiah says, this is, this is insane. Notice in the first part of verse 3, for the customs... Of the peoples, in this context it would have been the Babylonians, are vanity. Vanity. 
Now, do you remember where that word is found often in another book of the Bible? Ecclesiastes. It's the same word, hevel. Um, it's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, life under the sun, life that is overly infatuated with the here and now. All right? It, it's like striving after the wind. Um, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us nine times you see striving after the wind. Twenty-eight times you see life under the sun. It's, it's vanity. God created the heavenly bodies and is therefore in control of them. And to believe otherwise is vanity. It's idolatry. Speaking of idolatry, notice in the second part of verse 3. A tree from the forest is cut down. Now, what's he getting at here? Well, these idols were made from these trees. He's, he's astounded at what idolatry is. You see something very similar in Isaiah 44. We don't have time to look at that, but read that tonight during the halftime show. <laughs> a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's just amazing imagery. And they cannot speak. Their gods can't reveal anything, in other words. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. We saw that this morning. The Philistines get whipped by David, and they run and leave their idols. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, neither is in them to do good. Now, the, the idolaters themselves do evil, but the, the idols can't do evil because they're nothing but wood plated with silver. If idolatry wasn't so tragic and destructive, an epidemic, this would be a funny metaphor. But I can't help but think about the scarecrow on Wizard of Oz. Remember his wishful song. I looked, uh, I looked up the words this week. They're fascinating. I'll just read the first line. If I only had a brain, I could while away the hours conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. In my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. The Old Testament has a lot, as I said this morning, of fun with the insanity of idols. Uh, these idols have uh, human body parts, eyes, but they cannot see. They, 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 they have legs, but they cannot walk. Um, they have mouths, they cannot speak. They have ears, they cannot hear. Uh, and we are astounded, as we read the Old Testament, at the gullibility of people who would worship such gods. But we need to understand, if we define an idol as anything more important to us than the triune God, anything more important to us than the things that are important to God, then we're no different. We're 
we're just as foolish. Aren't God replacements that we sometimes worship and are prone to just as foolish? Of course they are. But you don't just remove idolatrous desires. You don't just determine by an act of the will, I'm no longer going to long for these things. And these things are the things that we think we need in order to have significance and worth and identity and purpose and pleasure and happiness. Some of these things can be good things. Do you know ministry could actually be an idol? And, And I've seen that in my life. So for instance, in ministry... I am placing too much significance on that when it's not going the way I want it to go, and I feel despair. At that moment, I'm looking to ministry to give me something only Jesus can give me. Or if things are going really well, and instead of being able to just be grateful to the Lord, I get paranoid. What's around the corner? So even good things can become bad things when they become ultimate things to us and it's got the it's got the sense of a a scarecrow in the in the cucumber patch notice in verse six now what is jeremiah doing here he's trying to wean the people off the idols you don't just beat people over the head The desires for these idols can't just be removed. They have to be replaced with greater desires for someone greater. That's how you deal with idolatry. Notice in verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you? He's worshiping God, but he wants these people to to listen, to observe this worship service so that they can see the insanity of what they're worshiping. Who would not fear you, O God of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms, there's none like you. So these verses stand in, in sharp contrast To Jeremiah's rebuke of these uh, worthless idols. They describe the incomparability of our God. He deserves to be worshipped alone as king. And no wise man among the nations could be found who had this wisdom. Notice in verse 8. They are both stupid and foolish. The instructions of idols is but wood. So he says they're stupid and foolish because their teachers were worthless idols. Notice verse 9. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Mere humans. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But again, the contrast, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. This is beautiful language. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. 
Now, in Jeremiah's day, idolatry was beautiful. They made these idols to look beautiful. They had an aesthetic equality about them that mesmerized the worshiper. The idols are no different today. The things that we, we find so fascinating and, and, and pull on our souls are just as beautiful to us as these physical idols were to these people. And here he is contrasting that superficial beauty with the beauty and the glory of the true and living God. He is the true God. He is sovereign. He cannot be controlled. And perhaps the greatest appeal of an idol is it does not demand holiness. It doesn't demand holiness. You're able to worship these gods and it makes no claims on your your personal life. Only a creator can demand that. Notice in verse 11. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, they shall perish from the earth. History is the graveyard for the idols. And from under the heavens. Now what's interesting here, does anybody have a footnote there? In verse 11. It's an interesting statement. Because it's the only verse in this Hebrew book, Jeremiah, that's written in Aramaic. Now, is that added there from, by some um, editor? No, I don't believe so. I believe that Jeremiah pins this because Aramaic is the official language of the Babylonian Empire. And it's as if to address these words directly to the Babylonian leaders and gods. It's a subversive kind of rhetoric. So he says, in language they would have understood the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, they are going to perish. You may not read, you may not understand anything else in this book, but you're going to understand that. Notice in verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power. Jeremiah isn't just saying, don't be an idolater, slapping their hand. He's weaning them off the idols by wooing them. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. I mean, you can worship in this chapter. And by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Beautiful. Yet every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. It is a delusion to be an idolater, to find your worth, your identity, your treasure in anything but the true and living God. At the time of their punishment, I love that, it's coming. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish and we need to see and we need to treat 
our own functional idols in the same way. Now, let me say this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that idolaters, or 1 Corinthians 6, rather, that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if we're Christians, the, the, the penalty for idolatry has been, has been taken in the Son of God, Jesus, uh, and the power of idolatry, you know, has been annulled in our lives. And yet, our default position, our natural setting each day is functional idolatry. It's so easy for us to fall back into that old pattern of idolatry. And all of us struggle with functional idolatry. So here's a couple of diagnostic questions. We could ask more, but just a few here. Where do I have and find the most pleasure in my life? That's a convicting question. I ask that to my students often. Because we live in a day where people can just mindlessly binge watch shows one after the other with closed Bibles in our homes. Where do I spend my spare time? It's not wrong to have recreation. Of course not. But where would you say as a pattern do you spend your spare time? Where do you spend your resources? Here's some uh, negative ways to think. What makes me really angry? Assuming that when you're really angry, it's not righteous anger. What makes me despair? What makes me paranoid? Those are good diagnostic questions. And what would Jeremiah say about our idols? One of my old football coaches from Alabama called me yesterday. And I told him, I said, Coach, I've, I'm a pastor. I haven't talked to him in years. I'm a pastor. I'm a professor. I've got five kids. And sometimes I feel like I may be burning out. And then I asked myself, what would Coach Colburn say? And he answered for me. He said, I'd tell you, put some more wood on the fire. <laughs> Question here. What would Jeremiah say about our functional idolatry? We don't have to ask. Because he doesn't struggle for lack of clarity. Notice in verse 16. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. By contrast, God is not like the idols. He is the portion of Jacob. A portion is something that belongs to someone. And Jeremiah knew this from experience. He was often in great pain and great distress. He wrote about affliction. He wrote about being a laughingstock and having his teeth broken. In the book of Lamentations. That's the whole book is called Lamentations. It's the lamenting prophet. And yet right there in the middle of chapter 3. Here's what he says in verse 24. The Lord is my portion. I may have lost everything else. The Lord is my portion. Says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. <coughs> Scarecrows do not provide that kind of intimacy. That kind of hope. And yet, 
God's portion has rejected him. So we've seen the insanity of idolatry. In verses 17 to 22, we see the consequences of idolatry. Look with me in verse 17. <clears throat> Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. So those who believed the false prophets who were saying, peace, peace. Remember, we saw that earlier in Jeremiah. There's no judgment coming. Peace, peace, these false prophets preached. He's saying that to these people. He says, they're about to be rounded up by the Babylonians and carried into exile. Now, it may be happening. Again, there was three stages to the exile. And so whether it was right after all three stages or right there in the middle of it, it's hard to say. But they're not just going to be carried into exile. Notice in verse 18. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. In other words, don't give the credit to the Babylonians. It's me who's doing this. You are not the victims of just some really mean people. This is judgment. And notice, I am slinging out. That word, slinging out, is the same word for a slingshot. It's like God is using a slingshot to sling the people out of the land. And I will bring distress on them, and they may feel it. Understatement. <clears throat> and this would affect unbelievers and believers. That's why we're Baptists, by the way, because under the new covenant, only believers are in the covenant, right? And, that's, and, and the covenant sign is only for those in the covenant, and the covenant sign is baptism. Under the old covenant, you were not born again into the covenant, you were born into the covenant. And that's why every boy on the eighth day was circumcised. And so under the old covenant, you had believers and you had unbelievers. And so under the old covenant, when judgment came, the believers would experience the, the pain and the suffering that came with God's judgment on these people. That's not to say that they wouldn't go to heaven. I'm saying in, in space and time, they would experience the pain of that judgment. And Jeremiah was one of those. He, he suffered as a righteous man, even though the judgment was due to the unbelieving Israel's sin. Again, Israel was deemed a faithful nation when the king was faithful, the one representing the many. Israel was deemed an unfaithful nation when the king was unfaithful. And, and Jeremiah faces two brutal afflictions. Notice in verse 19. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction, and I must bear it. He was crushed physically. The life of faith is not always a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. In fact, sometimes, if you're faithful, it's going to be more difficult. <clears throat> the second way that he 
he suffered in verse 20. Verse 20, he says, My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. So his family, his family also, he suffered domestically. And Jeremiah's struggles are not unfamiliar with spiritual leaders or with the people of God. For instance, righteous people can suffer physically because of the sins of others. It's a reality. Go to Nigeria today where beheadings are taking place. Go to North Korea today. Um, There are godly people in these places who are suffering severely. People in prison. uh, People who are being tortured. In local churches, righteous people can suffer because of the sins of others. Um, it, it, It happens. And that's why we have to be very careful about being the cause of that. And families can also suffer. Because of that. And we've seen it. Now in verse 21, Jeremiah gives, once again, this is not the first time he's done this, one of the main problems. For the shepherds are stupid. Now listen, if you're under a stupid shepherd, hopefully you're not. (laughs) Well, I set myself up there. (laughs) You're responsible, but the reality is there is a high degree of accountability on spiritual leaders. And right here, he says, the shepherds are stupid. And here's how we know they're stupid. They do not inquire of the Lord. What did David do this morning when when Philistines came against him? He inquired of the Lord twice. That's the mark of a spiritual leader. Spiritual leader lives on his face. Not these shepherds. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. And their failure would lead to to judgment. Verse 22, a voice, a rumor, behold, it comes a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a a lair of jackals. Man. He is speaking about the Babylonians coming in from the north. Now, imagine Jeremiah ending here. (laughs) That's the end of this chapter. Be of good cheer. See you next week. Well, it would be utter despair. We could sympathize with Jeremiah, but not learn a whole lot from him. But one thing we learn from Jeremiah is that even though he recognized that what had been revealed to him by the Lord was going to happen, it's as sure as anything, it didn't take his responsibility to pray away. Jeremiah was no fatalist, all right? A fatalist stops at verse 22. But Jeremiah doesn't stop in verse 22. And that brings us to the final part of this passage, Jeremiah's prayer. 
So we've seen the insanity of, of idolatry. We've seen the consequences of the idolatry being cut off, exiled, out of the land. And we finish with Jeremiah's prayer, provoked by this idolatry. I know, I love this verse. I think you will too. I know, O oh Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That it's not in man who walks to direct his steps. This is such a comforting verse for God's people. It echoes Proverbs 16. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Uh, Proverbs 20. A man's steps are of the Lord. And Jeremiah would have found this comforting as well. But he also recognized again that just because God is sovereign does not mean we're not culpable for our sins. There's a tension there. We have to maintain the tension. God is sovereign at the cross. No one denies that. And yet those people that nailed him on that cross were fundamentally guilty for their wickedness and rebellion. Notice in verse 24, Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him, and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation." Two kinds of justice are referenced here. One is a destructive kind of justice and the other a disciplinary kind of justice. On behalf of his people, Jeremiah confessed that their punishment was justified. Nevertheless, he appeals to God for a kind of justice that's not grounded in wrath, but corrective judgment. Corrective judgment rather than punitive judgment. And, and, and Jeremiah is closing out his prayer here with a plea for God to punish the nations and peoples who do not acknowledge the Lord as God. Uh, this is what we call destruct, destruction justice. All right? And, and, and so, why is this important? This is important, not to the unbeliever, in the sense that it, it's going to stir them. Perhaps it will. He's primarily writing this to people who are true believers and they would find comfort. They would find hope in the reality that God is going to maintain his just cause. Yes, he will be just with Israel, but he will also recognizing making a promise. He has promised to save his people even in the midst of their judgment. So this is a kind of corrective judgment. He is saying, Lord, you are using more wicked nation than us to, to prune us, uh, to, to discipline us. But, but we don't want to fall in your wrath. But let the wrath fall on those who are wicked. Of course, Jeremiah knew, or you could say, he maybe had a sense that there was someone coming greater, someone to save, the branch of David. We'll see that in Jeremiah 25. And that this basis for all corrective justice and judgment would be 
in this person. Now, what he knew, it's hard to say. But we know that the basis for corrective justice is in the cross, in the resurrection of Jesus. That's because in the cross, the destructive justice that we actually deserve is poured out on him. Because God has to judge our sin. He has to be wrathful on our sin. So how can we appeal to corrective justice when we deserve destruction justice, if you will? That's because in this one who would come, the destruction justice would be satisfied in him. And that's the true God who does that for us. Justice for our inherent and pervasive idolatry. And it's in seeing that. It's in beholding what God has done for us in Jesus to deal with our idolatry that we are weaned off of it. And we can say with Jeremiah, who is like you, O God? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for teaching us through the pen of the great Jeremiah who, who died likely sensing he was a failure. And yet, thousands of years later, in a February night in Fisherville, Kentucky, the fruit of his ministry continues to rever rever reverberate. And Father, I just pray tonight that as we go our way, we could recognize that we're not a whole lot different than the idolaters we see in this text. Except for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who has reversed the curse of our idolatry. And Father, I pray that we could behold you in your Son and by your Spirit and it's in beholding you, Lord, that we are weaned off those things that we think we need in order to have value, worth, significance, happiness, identity. We thank you that our new identity is in our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.